It's the 20th of January, 2019, and this is episode 385 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Hey folks, I'm Adam B. Levine, and on today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm here with Stephanie Murphy. Happy holidays. <laughs> Jonathan Mohan. Hey, hey. And Andreas M. Antonopoulos. Ho, ho, ho! All right, so I talked with Matthew Zipkin a couple of days ago, and uh, he has completed work on the first uh, Bitcoin Clock Junior. So, okay, can I can yeah, I ask? Please. Because th- this nagging question for the last three episodes, what the hell is a Bitcoin Clock Junior? <laughs> I have no idea what you've been talking about for two episodes now, but I've been too embarrassed to ask. So a Bitcoin Clock is the idea of a Bitcoin node In the case of the full-sized one, it's a full node. In the case of the junior one, it's a light node that effectively visually shows the uh, state of the the Bitcoin network and a whole bunch of different metrics using colorful lights. Uh, Matthew Zipkin a couple of years ago started producing these little effectively mini computers that have this uh, this LED front face on them. And it was interesting, it actually, um, what brought it up is that uh, CoinKite has been um, talking about offering their own one. And I looked at it and it's like this like mechanical electric thing. And they were like four or $5,000 each. And I was like, man, I would like one of these, but that's super expensive. And then I remembered that Matthew had been making kind of this other more colorful one. And I kind of caught it at the right time where Open Bazaar uh, where he sells these was offering a uh, 75% off discount when uh, you know going to certain merchants and then they would essentially open bazaar was paying those merchants for that so i took advantage of that and bought uh, two of the junior clocks which are about $400 each normally and so that's what we're giving away what we're giving away are as uh, matthew zipkin describes them non-boring bitcoin nodes that communicate a lot of information about what's going on so that's the idea very cool i just saw a picture of it and and they do look uh, rather interesting. So this is either a, a full node or prunes or light node that is displaying these concentric rings of LEDs that mean different things. I wonder if you can configure them because like we just passed as a milestone 500 days to the next halving. So we're now just under 500 days. I believe we're at 496, 97 or something like that, approximately to the next Bitcoin halving. So that's something we can track, right? Like I've seen clocks where, you know, 12 o'clock at the top is the 210,000 blocks since the last halving and 105,000 blocks halfway is, is six o'clock at the bottom. And the needle kind of goes round. And as soon as it reaches the top again, you have another halving. So it takes four years to go around. And then you have the shorter cycle, which is, uh, 2016 blocks that the Bitcoin Clock Junior you talked about does. And that's the difficulty retargeting, which is approximately every two weeks. So yeah, for me, this was, again, like a, a kind of opportunistic thing and a way to try and understand the network at a slightly more technical level than I normally do. Because, you know, like my interest primarily with all of this stuff, and I think a lot of people's interest in cryptocurrency has more to do with kind of the philosophy behind it and capabilities enabled by it. And so for me, as a guy who's always been a little bit, you know, afraid of the command line, just on general principle, um, you know, getting one of these is a way for me to, to try and understand that better and have an excuse to have Matthew walk me through a whole bunch of different things. <laughs> so this will be the first time I'm running a, a Linux node, and that's kind of where it all started. So I think that mine is arriving towards the end of the month or something like that. So I'll have some more insight on it for a while. And we're going to be giving away this first one through the end of January. 
So the end of January is when we'll actually give away the first one. And then we have a second Bitcoin clock junior that we'll be giving away probably over the course of the two months following that. So there's lots of opportunity to get one. And just in general, it seems like a cool, you know, community project from a guy who I'm a big fan of. Yeah, <laughs> that's, absolutely. That's really cool. Yeah. Matthew's uh, been very... doing cool stuff since longer than I can remember. <laughs> This led to our contest where we wanted people to send in questions and we would answer the questions. And if we answer your question on the air, then you get entered to win one of those Bitcoin clock juniors we were just talking about. So um, you guys ready to jump into questions? Yeah, let's do it. This is a question that I kind of wanted to talk about last week, but we definitely didn't have enough time. So Vinay Gupta posted a YouTube video several years ago that I believe anticipated many of the current debates around protocol governance that we see today. Um, this is with regards to the recent podcast and coverage we've been doing on the Bitcoin cash, uh, you know, is hash power enough thing and those lawsuits and stuff like that. Quote, his basic point was to draw the contrast between the system of hard property rights that exist within the Bitcoin network and protocol and the very squishy community ownership that comes along with an open source protocol. That is to say, while one can own a Bitcoin in a very literal sense relative to other forms of property, nobody owns Bitcoin as a whole. So anyways, you get the idea here. <laughs> you know, again, to, to kind of draw us back to the recent episodes we've been talking about, the thought from the perspective of the Bitcoin SV crowd at first was that mining hash power was enough to win a hash power battle. And as we saw, that really wasn't the case because even though they might have won from a technical standpoint, the way the game was played is that the other side actually went around them and changed things that were outside of the protocol, but which were very important to the protocol changes becoming adopted. And so in that way, they went around that hard consensus of property, you know, those hard property rights that he's talking about, and instead wound up leaning on people for emotional reasons. Oh, you don't like these people. Oh, we're scared of what these people will do. Things like that that really have nothing to do with the measure of how much hash power you're throwing at the network at any given time. So I'll just open it up to that. You know, like relative to now what we've seen with the Bitcoin Cash community and just in general, other sorts of examples of this, what do you think of this, this hard consensus versus soft, squishy consensus question? Well, I think soft consensus is something that we already have. It's politics. We have soft consensus in society. We have soft consensus in our current financial system. In fact, most aspects of society are run through social-based, political-based soft consensus systems, sometimes more direct, sometimes more indirect through representatives, shareholders voting in corporations, boards of directors, middle management, politicians, all of that is soft consensus. I think what's interesting about open blockchains is that for the first time, we have the opportunity to try out hard consensus models. And of course, it's inevitable that when, that, when those face challenges, people are going to try to either propose hybrid models or find the nice side of the soft consensus models that they now miss. So hard mathematical certainty is the ideal. Of course, the reality departs from the ideal. In the perfect sense, and there is no perfect utopian application, but in the perfect sense, you have hard mathematical rules and the hash power itself is so broadly distributed, so decentralized, all the way down to the Satoshi ideal, which is one CPU, one vote, that no one really gets an opportunity to play with those rules or attack the system. And that's perfection. But 
in between, there's reality. And reality involves a lot of hard mathematical rules and certainty that's algorithmically predicted. Like, we will have a halving in 209,000 blocks. There's no question about whether we will or not. You know, there's certainty around that. But at the same time, there's the element of who controls the hash power? What are their long-term objectives? Could they start some kind of consensus-based attack on the system? What software are people running? What are the developers putting in that software, et cetera? So we are, we're never at the ideal. So it's politics on the one side versus code is law on the other side. It seems like, though, there are things that you can accomplish in politics that are basically impossible given the current state of technology to accomplish in code is law, right? Like code is law. For example, well, well, so code is law can be used for things like the DAO. Code is law can be used for things that happen entirely on the blockchain, right? Where all of the, you know, where you're putting Ethereum into a smart contract that's based on the Ethereum blockchain using entirely on-chain methods, right? That's something where code is law in theory can work because it actually has the ability and the control over those systems. But the further away you get from that, right, like if you don't have all of that information on the blockchain, then you introduce opportunities where code is law can actually be corrupted by politics because politics can influence the inputs going into the system. And then once they're in the system, well, code is law. So that information now has to be treated fairly by that system. And so that's how you wind up with it. So again, like again, using the, the DAO as an example, that's what happened and code was law until code was law was a bad outcome for anybody. And then they used politics to shift uh, so that it wasn't a bad situation for them, which had repercussions, of course, by itself. But I, I suppose that's a question is, is it even rational at this point to think about code as law as like a single path forward, right? Like, doesn't it need politics in order to make good decisions and to correct errors that have been made? I think the the mistake there is that Everything has to be hard promises in order for this to have value. I think quite the opposite. Even if the scope in which hard promises can be applied is very, very narrow, you can build some incredibly valuable applications, including monetary systems, on top of that small, hard kernel of unbreakable guarantees. Mm -hmm. Because, And this goes down to the fact that you can build soft promises around a core that has hard promises, but you can't make hard promises on top of something that's soft. So for example, there is no such thing as an irreversible transaction in the banking system. None mm -hmm. at all. It is impossible to do. A, no one can guarantee that a payment can go through, not a single one in the traditional financial system. And then you have uh, Bitcoin and other blockchains, and they have certain core promises. They're very narrow. The script will execute. Your your very narrow property rights through prime numbers and elliptic curves are guaranteed. Twenty-one Less than 21 million coins, specific issuance rate, those hard promises. Now, if you want to add a soft promise around that, well, you can actually code reversible transactions with escrow and time locks and things like that. You can soften that promise. You can make a reversible transaction on top of an irreversible one. But you have to have that hardcore kernel. And that gives you a whole class of financial applications that are extremely valuable, even if their scope is very narrow. We don't need to run all of our society on mechanistic properties and predictability. But there are certain applications where that is very useful. You know, 
I think people use the word politics disparagingly. <laughs> and I'm going to be guilty of that myself. And I would say there's coercive politics and non-coercive politics. So like a, a nonprofit or a social group versus a government. When it comes to the non-coercive form of politics, which is people coming to consensus on a topic, I think that's just an emergent property of people that, you know, physics can be hard coded because there's no debating reality. Reality is reality. But inherently, systems of consensus, I think, once they achieve sufficient scale or weight, turn into political systems. And the debate around whether or not Bitcoin has, will have, or will continue to have politics in it to me is sort of like saying, well, you know, I really like that bugs can walk across the water because the predominant force when you're that size is surface tension. But I'd really like it if dogs could also walk on water when once you get to that size, the predominant force is gravity. And I really think that Bitcoin specifically and many other blockchains has finally achieved enough weight in their consensus and their adoption that we're going to have to look more and more towards soft consensus as means to affect change in it than hard consensus. And I know that's sort of a taboo uh, thing to say. I, I think it's the opposite. Actually, you're absolutely right. The politics isn't a, a necessarily a bad word. Politics is simply uh, governance by persuasion, right? Ideally, politics is the resolution and governance of society without violence. And so soft skills and soft politics are useful. But then again, I think as as this system gets bigger, we're not going to see the application of soft politics for changing the rules. What we're going to see is a complete inability to change the rules without forking, meaning that if you want to change the rules, you're going to have to build a parallel system. That's the only aspect in which we will see fragmentation, but we won't see modification. The rules can no longer be changed other than in very, very small ways on non-significant things where there's broadly applicable consensus. Right. The rule on 21 million coins, that's never going to change. And in fact, the scaling war showed that the the range of things that can be changed was a lot narrower, at least than I thought. And the window for making changes was closing faster than I thought. And so soft consensus and politics are not going to be able to change these hard rules. Instead, what they're going to do is propose alternative systems that run in parallel. And that way, everybody gets their fork. That's the beauty of it. You don't have to choose between A and B. You run both. And, and the market decides. It's sort of like my favorite Mythbusters quote, which is, I reject your reality and substitute my own. <laughs> well, in, in a system of forks, you have the multiverse, which is every possible implementation of the protocol is now expressed by its own chain. And you choose which one you're on. Your reality is whatever chain you've decided to predominantly follow with your economic power. And that means that the rules don't change in any of the chains. It's just that the number of chains proliferate to express more rule sets. On a recent episode, uh, Daniel Krawitz uh, talked to us about incentives driving network effect. And basically, the takeaway from folks who believe in sort of the Bitcoin SV vision is that the incentives will drive people to use Bitcoin SV and everything else will fail. The actual argument was that uh, the long-term interest of a chain is served by the people who mine that chain because they're the only parties within the system who are truly incentivized at the protocol level for the continued successful operation of the Bitcoin network, 
regardless of whether or not they use it for transactions themselves, because they make money and, and generate profit off of the the simple operation of it and, you know, and functional continued value of it. So the argument there is that because that is the most important thing about any protocol is how much it listens to the miners because they're the most incentivized party, that makes Bitcoin SV the superior option of all available. And the network effect will drive people to that because it's the one that's going to be successful. That seems like a kind of insane piece of logic, I think, if you're looking at it from the outside looking in. But I mean, we sort of believe that about Bitcoin relative to or cryptocurrency broadly relative to non-cryptocurrency sort of options. So I'm kind of curious. Let's let's turn the conversation in that direction. Do you think there's going to be one cryptocurrency out there, you know, at any point, call it 10 years from now, 20 years from now or whatever number you want to say? Or are we in for this, you know, multiverse of, of tokens and blockchains and protocols for the foreseeable future? I feel it takes an incredible degree of denial to continue to take the absolute maximalist position when since 2013, the trend has consistently been in the opposite direction. So we are already experiencing this enormous diversification, fragmentation, a multiverse of coins. That doesn't mean they all have value. And it doesn't mean that most of them have value. In fact, the opposite. It's very much a parallel distribution. And that parallel distribution has a steep slope and a very long tail. And most of the stuff on the right-hand side is garbage. But that still means there's no dominant system. In fact, it's likely, if the parallel continues this way, that the thing that has a plurality doesn't have a majority, meaning that the dominant coin is less than 50% anyway of use, users, transactions, volume, and economic uh, value. Even though it's dominant, it might be dominant at 25% or 30%. And I think we're much more likely to head in that direction than this idea that there will be only one and it will drive out all other possibilities. Yeah, I... I I like to reframe that sort of notion into a comparable, which is when was the last time we had a singular codified canon and a singular group that interpreted that canon that tried to get billions and billions of people to adopt it and how long did that last? And uh, we talk about fragmentation, and I like to talk about denominationalism, which is if you look at how many Christians there are versus how many Protestants and Catholics and all the derivations there are in, I think that Bitcoin will succeed as a class of actors and that chains forking off of Bitcoin and altcoins would be denominations for distinct groups of people who believe functionally different things, but sort of stem from the same root in the same way we see with all of the other major religions that you have this Genesis canon and then these fragmented denominations all forking off of it. And exactly the same thing, especially when we're talking about protocols, protocols are languages for computers. And if you look at languages, for a variety of reasons, including geographic fragmentation, use cases, uh, differences in culture, languages do not converge to a single one. Instead, they diverge. To the famous Churchill quote, the United States and the United Kingdom are two common countries divided by a common language. Okay, so given that, given that we're talking about this pluralistic world of cryptocurrencies and blockchains and things like that moving forward, you know, let's take it back a, a step and say, okay, well, 
let's just think about cryptocurrencies as one class of thing. I think that I still believe at this point that cryptocurrencies have a, a momentum and a gravity to them because they're a substantially better way. But I, I don't think that even if Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies succeed, that we would see the elimination of national currencies. I think that it's more likely that, again, this is another element competing out there and could actually, again, as we've thought for a long time, drive countries into more compatible technologies simply because they don't want to have such an obvious competitive disadvantage at the point that network effect starts to kick in. So I'm curious for, you know, so like, so if we don't believe that this is going to happen for one cryptocurrency, what do, how do we feel about cryptocurrencies relative to the current status quo of money? Well, open source projects don't really kill. They just uh, make irrelevant or they compete in a different area. So everyone said Linux is going to kill Windows. Linux is going to kill Windows. And Linux has killed Windows once smartphones came out because it was an entirely new field where there were no entrenched interests. And now the predominant you know, adoption for, for smartphones is the vast majority Linux. So Linux won the consumer market, but we needed an entirely new field before it could. And, and Linux killed Windows by, because Microsoft is a Linux company now. So the other way open source and open systems do so is by subverting, undercutting, and eventually subsuming. It's the Greek strategy. If the barbarians are at the gate, open the gates and introduce them to good wine orgies and theater and watch <laughs> them turn into Greeks. <laughs> the, other, uh, the other Greek parable that I was going to go with, and I'm glad Andreas brought them up, is there was uh, Roman numerals, and then there were the base 60 Byzantine math. And the Romans, believe it or not, found it rather hard to do fractions in Roman numerals. If you've ever tried doing math in Roman numerals, figure out how fun that is. Um, but a base 60 system inherently had fractions in it, so it was really easy to do math in. So Roman mathematicians and Greek mathematicians would do their math proofs in Byzantine math, but would publish it in Roman numerals because the lingua franca of the state and of the group was uh, Roman numerals. But in order to get anything done, you had to do it in Byzantine math. Mm. So I think what the future would look like is all these nation state currencies are here to stay because they're codified and formalized in a way that those structures aren't going to go away. But in order to get anything functionally done, you're going to use a cryptocurrency. And then when needing to reflect that out to a formal entity, would reflect that back out in dollars. The National Health Service in the UK um, about a month ago sent out a directive ordering doctors and hospitals and clinics to try to eradicate fax machines over the next five years. So again, these things don't There's go There's an ambitious away. goal for you. <laughs> right, and they're, gonna, they're, and they're most likely going to fail. And, and that's the great irony, which is that the old systems don't go away. They just lose relevance and importance until eventually they have no power, they have no relevance, they're relics of the past, but they're still around. They're still around like, you know, you can go to Central Park in New York today and take a beautiful horse-drawn carriage ride around the park. And it's, and it's lovely, but it's not your primary means of transportation. It's also prohibitively expensive. You can tell who lives in New York. <laughs> yeah, those things are like 30 to 60 bucks. You're taking us back for a second to the, to the kind of politics versus code is law question. Jonathan, without getting too much into it, one thing that strikes me is that most of the time when we see a project, we're seeing that project after it's been codified. 
But you and I were both involved with the early days of Ethereum in the the six months to nine months before it actually launched, you know, even its fundraiser and and years before the actual protocol launched properly. What what I'm kind of curious about is you were involved with that more intensely than I was. At what point did it stop being about politics and start being CODIS law, right? Because it was a politics process right up to the codification of the initial protocol, right? I think that things are about money and it's a lot more likely for people to express values when it makes them money. And then, you know, if they're real values, if when it doesn't make them money, they still hold on to those values for a lot of the people who were constructing Ethereum. I think that they expressed a number of values that when those values as expressed had a direct, uh, an individualized cost to them, we're not willing to pay that cost. So on the concept of, you know, the politics of Ethereum, there were massive amounts of politics that went into the founding of it. And then the people who remained who expressed specific values, they said, this is, these are the values of the system. When the adherence to those values had ex- direct cost to them, uh, didn't adhere to them, didn't follow through on them. Code is law until you lose money or you might go into trouble for adhering to code is law, in which case then it's not a value. I think we've seen the opposite, too, in Bitcoin, which is that people will express political and ideological opinions, where if you look a bit more closely, they have to directly benefit them and their pockets, but they won't express them in those terms. They'll express them as kind of abstract political and ideological perspectives. My favorite person in this space who I think doesn't get in any way the amount of accolades for the amount of integrity in the way I'm describing it has is uh, Yifu Gao, who so genuinely believed in the decentralization of Bitcoin that when his company made the first ASIC, knew he was losing money giving these devices away because he didn't want to become the predominant supermajority hash rate owner and perpetuity that sort of Jihan has. Yep. It, you know, I think of him as the George Washington of Bitcoin. That, you know, he was the man who could have been king back in 2012 and decided not to. And like when you look at the Bitcoin community and the number of people who said, this is my beliefs, this is what I adhere to, and then have demonstrated, look how much money I left on the table or how much I took on as a burden in adherence to those beliefs. I I can't help but, you know, be in awe of the number of people who were standing on top of in order to have Bitcoin succeed. And uh, maybe I was too close to the Ethereum thing, but I don't see as many stories in the Ethereum community as I see a Bitcoin to that end. It's so interesting to me that we don't have an origin story for Bitcoin beyond the initial seed of it, right? Like we understand what happened in terms of, oh, here's the software, here's the announcement, things like that. But the process that that we had for Ethereum, where it actually, you know, went from conceptualization to formation and organization to having a a substantial number of people involved before the product launched, before there was really anything, you know, like that's a story that, that perhaps Ethereum didn't introduce, but it certainly is the largest example of it. And I think that perhaps that may be why there are some of these cultural differences in there, was because like a startup that you know is trying to get into a space that's already getting hot, uh, it's different than the guys who start the startup or, or you know the project that is doing something that nobody believes can work. The difference between the time when Satoshi launched that versus when Ethereum launched is remarkably different in that nobody believed it was possible when Satoshi did it, and everybody was looking for kind of the next step of what you could accomplish with it at the point that uh, that Ethereum did it. Well, it was also 
a very clear distinction with Bitcoin versus Ethereum was the Bitcoin community that founded it, like whoever those founders were, very explicitly decided what future they wouldn't have post-launch. Whereas the people who were involved with Ethereum were constantly strategizing and structuring the type of future they would have in the protocol post-launch. So there was like a diametrical structure for how they were approaching the building of the protocol in how they thought the future of their involvement with it would be. Which, you know, I mean, a lot of these dApps that are company-specific, like, I should very well hope you'd have a future in it it post-launch, you know? (laughs) So... I'm not saying that's inherently a bad thing. I'm just saying it very, very much changes the dynamic. The other thing that I guess I, and this is something that, you know, you could say is um, Ethereum very much so believed in the future that it was going to create, that it pretended it didn't live in the present and that it lived in the future. So there were virtually no legal agreements or contracts or written understandings because code is law. We don't need contracts. And it was very much a concept of thinking like, all of these rules and standards and best practices to, that apply to these other projects don't apply to us because we're the pretty girl in the room. And, you know, it ended up financially succeeding just fine. But a lot of the people who were involved at the early days, very much to their detriment, got affected by the fact that they were bought into the belief of code is law manifested through an entity that yet didn't create that world. And I think it's very telling that, you know, Ethereum wants to live in a world where code is law and will create a structure to enable other people to do that. And yet the way it governs itself through the foundation is a Swiss legal entity. It's not a DAP. It's not a DAO. And at the very least, I have an inordinate amount of respect for Dash for eating their own dog food of living in the consensus model that they're describing that others should live in and, and operate within their uh, master node delegate model for uh, the way that funds get attributed. So, you know, code is law for thee, but not for me, seems to be a premise that I would wish very quickly would change in Ethereum, but I don't think has ever been the case. I mean, has always been the case, excuse me. Do you think that we have a tragedy of the commons problem with Bitcoin? I mean, in the current state of things, so the, the argument that you're making here is that, and it's not really an argument, we're just talking, Ethereum took control of their destiny, right? And when I say Ethereum, I mean... The people who supported Ethereum initially, who were instrumental in its creation, who, you know, then formed companies, you know, built around building out certain parts of that vision. So, I mean, like there was a a nut of people who were involved, who have gone on to be enormous players in the space and control very large companies and very large efforts, uh, development efforts or otherwise. Um, That's not really true with Bitcoin. With Bitcoin, there was here's the founding of it. And then here's the long period where nobody's serious, you know, who used it for much serious, right, outside of like gambling applications. And then here's the part farther on where people actually started building companies around it and started doing things other than buying and selling it. With Ethereum, it was kind of the other way around. It's like the structure and the people came first, and then the protocol came after that to do what it was that those people wanted to do. And then now you have kind of this bigger ecosystem. So that's what I'm asking is that the founding ecosystem of Ethereum, while there is an element of control, there's also a large element of people who, pardon the phrase, give a shit, you know, and in Bitcoin, there's a difference between people who give a shit versus people who can actually create successful so businesses that make use of, when, of when the protocol. When it comes to Ethereum really sticking the landing in 2015 to be the framework that this DAP or, you know, altcoin explosion created on top of. Um, occurred in. I, I one of my favorite 
people to talk to about this is uh, Joey from Augur. Because he tried to build Augur on top of Bitcoin. And in 2015, late 2014, he would talk to the Bitcoin core guys and say, hey, I'm trying to build this on top of Bitcoin. I want to understand how do I do this? How should I build this? I have this bug. What happens? And they made him feel like he was the dick for even asking them that he was wasting their time or that they knew better or it was just a very toxic experience of trying to work with that community, those developers to try to build on top of Bitcoin with. And he was like, well, Bitcoin's where all the market is. I want to build on top of this. And then he would talk to Ethereum and say, hey, there's this bug I have that Ethereum can't handle. And then a week later, Vitalik would just update the Ethereum like protocol so that it could <laughs> do the thing that Joey needed. And he just said, well, darn, like, I, I don't know what this Ethereum thing is going to do in terms of success, but I know that I cannot functionally build on top of a community that treats me like a dick for trying to work with them. I think that's a perfect demonstration of not just the difference in philosophy, but more importantly, the difference in application space. The reason Bitcoin is and has been and continues to need to be conservatively developed is because its area of specialization is super robust, super secure, super deterministic sound money and operating in a highly adversarial environment where you can't expect the goodwill and cooperation of anyone not the hardware vendors, not the miners, not world governments, not institutions. And in that environment, it serves some very important needs that don't exist in the world today, that are not served in the world. To be truly neutral, truly sound uh, global money, it has to do those things. And that means you can't have the kind of flexibility where one person decides, let's add something to the protocol without very carefully thinking about all of the implications that has down the road. And Bitcoin has specialized in that domain. And it's why, even though I believe we'll have a proliferation of different currencies on a long tail, none of those will be able to effectively compete for the one application of super secure, robust, sound money that survives an adversarial environment. And for exactly that reason, Ethereum can't do that, will never do that. In fact, if it tries to do that, it would actually destroy its other benefits, which are flexibility. Those are two different application spaces, and you can't occupy both at the same time. And arguably, after a certain level of development, you can't even have two different systems occupying that niche because of network effects. So, you know, sure, some developers are just dicks, and that has nothing to do with, with the underlying issue. But some of that has to do with the fact that Bitcoin has to be more conservative in order to serve that application space. It cannot simply adopt changes without thinking very, very far ahead about the implications those changes will have. Right. And so that's not to say that that isn't a benefit to the currency application. But this notion of like, what am I going to build my company on top of? Or where's going to be the environment that that DAP explosion occurs on? That's why it happened on Ethereum and not Bitcoin. It was that, that experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because Bitcoin is not something you build companies on top of. Bitcoin is something you build economies I mean, on top of. That's a that's, very that, different that, thing. That, that may be you know, firmly held by you and then also apparent retrospectively now. But you know, four mm -hmm. years ago, <laughs> that was most certainly not the apparent 
thing. And, and then also um, Blockstream was talking about sidechains as a hard fork to Bitcoin to sort of make it as extensible with experimentation as Ethereum ended up becoming. And I think that kind of attempt would fail. But I, I've been fairly consistent about this. I mean, it hit right here on this show when we're having these discussions about what is the role of exchanges and other businesses and merchant payment systems and all of the various companies that were being built on top of Bitcoin, I was consistent in saying these are bridges, they're on-ramps, and they become obsolete if, if Bitcoin is successful. Um, because you don't need them in a truly decentralized right. peer-to-peer system. Once you have a self-referential economy, people stop buying Bitcoin, they start earning it. And at that point, what is the point of an exchange? So I never saw really Bitcoin as something that you build companies or apps on top of. Uh, the broader cryptocurrency space is playing that game out. And ironically, all of those other things, all of those other apps fail to work if you shut off the ability for them to have a sound neutral money that can be exchanged no matter what anywhere. So that kind of brings to mind another question, which is, do you have any past strongly held convictions regarding Bitcoin or cryptocurrency where you've changed your mind and sort of uh, descriptions of that? Back in 2015, I thought that we had to address scaling sooner rather than later. And I made some comments about that kind of supported a tweet that uh, Gavin Andreessen made at the time about increasing the block size. And that was a belief that I held strongly at the time. And over the next year, took a 180 and went in the exact opposite direction. So the reason I made a 180 was really simple. From the very early stages, I believed in this idea that the protocol ossifies over time as it gets embedded in more devices. And once it's ossified, you can't make any changes. So I've always thought, you know, we have a narrowing window of things we can change in the core protocol to make improvements, the necessary, the absolutely necessary improvements before that window shuts. And then you can't make any changes. It's like IPv4. It's in too many devices. You can't even upgrade it anymore. And I believe that's happening. When the scaling debate started, I thought we had a window of about two to three years. The debate around scaling, which turned into a power play, demonstrated practically that that window had already closed for many controversial decisions, that we could not reach consensus, and that the power struggle and ability to make money in that power struggle was already trumping engineering. And at that point, I realized that, in fact, that window was much narrower. And once I realized that, I also understood that there are other more important things that need to be done first, privacy being the most important. And if we have a narrow window, privacy needs to be done in the base layer, but scaling can be done in the second layer. So therefore, I flipped. I started believing that privacy was needed first and scalability could wait until later and mostly be done on the second layer quite effectively. Uh, And I, I took a lot of flack for that, but it wasn't arbitrary. It was because the facts changed. And based on new facts, a strongly held opinion was worth nothing because I had to revise my understanding of the space. Jonathan, I want to hear yours. <laughs> I was debating between one or two. One is, um, I'm frankly surprised that Counterparty failed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm laughing because Adam built an entire company on top of it. But no, it just it seemed inevitable that a layer built on top of Bitcoin, 
using Bitcoin for business ends made sense. And in 2014, Blockstream, Sidechains, and Counterparty were so in the air and tangible that I, I very much believed that they would be material and real competitors. And it's really hard to build things on top of Bitcoin and get buy into the changes that you need to have them succeed, even to the point where they're adversarial to people trying to do that. And then the other thing that I believed previously was that um, I don't think Bitcoin will ever have privacy in it. And by that, I mean, I think that if a version of Bitcoin that gets privacy implemented into it were to occur, all of the exchanges and the CMEs and the Coinbases of the world will just say, well, that's not the version of Bitcoin. When you click buy on the word Bitcoin, we're going to let you press buy on. In the same way that when Ethereum did a fork, all the exchanges said, hey, Ethereum is now called Ethereum Classic. When you buy Ethereum, you're buying this fork of it on our exchange. And, and I think that people are not really appreciating the amount of control to the consensus, the meta consensus of what the people consider the protocol. Uh, just listing a token when you buy it has. And I think that there are too many entrenched interests. Like I, I think I said this a year ago, but that I don't think the enemies of Bitcoin are the Rogers or the Bitcoin cash guys. I think the real enemies are going to be the exchanges and the listing agents and what they will or will not allow to be called Bitcoin when a consumer presses by uh, when Bitcoin ultimately does have privacy, because there's no such thing as private money. And I think that everyone says that the Bitcoin needs to be more like physical dollars. And I think that if you try to sell physical dollars today, you go to jail. And I don't know how legal Bitcoin will be once it's made private. And further, I don't know to what extent any of the people we consider allies, like the Coinbases of the world, would in any way support a Bitcoin with privacy in it. So I, I actually, I think we're past the point of Bitcoin having privacy. And that if Bitcoin were to have privacy, that it would be some marginalized fork that no one can get access to. But it would be the one that gives you the greatest degree of freedom and serves the niche that we absolutely need to be served. And then there'd be an investment Bitcoin, which, you know, I've never really cared well, about. Like, anyway. So my fear has always been like, make sure you're building SSL, not PGP. Because almost everyone uses SSL. No one uses PGP. And I think we're at the point now where the facts as they are, it's that if Bitcoin were to become truly private, it would be basically the PGP of Bitcoin, and the one that isn't would be the SSL of Bitcoin. I really like the fact that all of the privacy developments right now, specifically things like Taproot and Graftroot, are actually around obfuscation and plausible deniability to give the exchanges a see-no-evil out of exactly that conundrum. Meaning that if it looks like a payment to a public key and you can no longer tell the difference between that and a coin join, you're done. Right. If I were to stake my worry to the future success of Bitcoin as it was envisioned, it would be that fear. Like all, all the other fears to me have been sort of answered in a justifiable way, except for that one. When Ethereum was first coming on the scene, I was really freaked out by the future implications of this. I was basically expecting that there was there were going to be a lot of technologies that would come out that would rely on this system of smart contracts and people would be really trusting of it without necessarily seeing the downsides or being aware of the potential pitfalls of that. But I think that now people are being more cautious and that the world is not changing overnight to include scary things like, you know, drones that can be like assassination drones and <laughs> things like that that I was worried about. 
among other things. Any technology integrates into society, but it's a slow and gradual integration. People are not ready to embrace something really life-changing and world-changing overnight. And so I think I can relax a little bit on those fears. You know, maybe it'll happen over time where it's just going to creep in. And before we know it, we are going to be living in a world where a lot of stuff is is done by robots. But I, at the same time, I don't think it's exactly like that. I think that was an exciting thing that people were talking about as like a far future vision with Ethereum, something that you could do. But in reality, like the applications are going to be a lot more simple and a lot less insidious than that, especially at first as the technology comes online and is tested in the real world. So that's one belief that's changed for me. And also, <laughs> I think a belief that has intensified, not not really changed. This is a belief that I always held and it's gotten stronger over time. And that is that I don't know what the future is going <laughs> to look like. Seriously. Right? <laughs> and nobody knows. <laughs> we can speculate and think about it and it's really fun. But at the end of the day, like none of us can really even imagine it fully. And we're going to have to wait and see what happens. But that's part of the excitement, right? And being aware that you don't know is also exciting because you can just be surprised by what comes out and not try to control everything or plan everything. Yeah, I'm really excited about what the future will hold. I've already been surprised by what it looks like compared to what I was imagining five years ago or even more, I guess. Things look really different than I could have ever pictured. Right. And so I know in another five years or another 10 years or 20 years, I won't even be able to make any predictions about it. So I'm not even going to try. And I'm just going to watch to see what happens. Yeah, I, I have to agree with you on that, Stephanie. I think that it's very, 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 very difficult to look at the current state of any of this stuff and be able to predict the future state of it, because there's a lot of stuff that we don't know yet. One of the big takeaways for me over the last couple of years is that timelines and projected timelines do not exist. <laughs> you know, we've heard, I mean, uh, Andreas, you brought up uh, the conversation about side chains in 2014. And uh, I've had so many conversations about side chains over the last three, four years. And the word has always been that we're like six months out. And so that this is one example of many, many, many things within the sort of cryptocurrency ecosystem broadly. But the problems that we're trying to solve here, if there isn't already a solution out there, those are potentially hard problems. And there's no way to really set a timeline for that. You might have expectations, but most of the time those are wrong because of a phenomenon called emergent complexity, where basically until you've intensely you know, dug into something and actually done it, you don't actually understand all the things that it takes to dig into it and do it. And it's very difficult to see that from the outside. So if you're doing something that's been done before, well, maybe that's not so bad because you have examples to look at. But if you're doing something in the cryptocurrency space, a lot of these things are new. And so the risk that goes along with them in terms of not just will it work, but how do I do it in a way where it is most likely to work are not at all obvious. Uh, and sometimes you have to build it wrong a couple of times to build it right. So for that reason, you know, like, <laughs> man, the amount of times that I've gotten fooled by something that was uh, looking like it was going to happen and then didn't happen is is too great for me. And so I've now taken to over the last year, year and a half, taken a much more kind of skeptical look at these technologies. Whenever anybody tells me anything in terms of time frame, uh, you know, I just assume that they're wrong <laughs> and uh, yeah. set myself up to be pleasantly surprised if they wind well, up being right. I, I'd like to take the opposite perspective just briefly, kind of a slightly more optimistic because what, what you say is true and that's definitely happening. But the opposite is also happening, which is 
when I think that there's an intractable problem or a very hard problem that we seem stuck on, and then suddenly a brilliant solution emerges from nowhere that nobody expected. Mm-hmm. That was my experience with, for example, Ethereum. I had not imagined the application of smart contracts in the way that Ethereum did it when it came out, when I read that first white paper by Vitalik in I guess it was 2014, right? I had not seen that coming. Uh, Mimblewimble, Lightning Network, the soft fork solutions in SegWit. There's all of these technologies and inventions that came out of nowhere. There was nothing really to, to prepare me for the idea that these were under development or that someone had thought of them. They just, boom, suddenly they're on the, on the radar. And so that's also another thing that, makes this such an exciting space. Can't predict anything other than it won't be boring. <laughs> Very true. And then, uh, you know, the other thing that's been more relevant to right now, because it's a change that I'm going through at the moment, is, you know, for a long time, I've talked about tokens and cryptocurrencies and blockchains being used in games and other types of things like that. And uh, for a long time, the only examples that we had of that were the early cryptocurrency games, which actually introduced some of those concepts like Spells of Genesis and things like that, where you'd have, for example, a token that represents an in-game card. Um, And the whole idea was that we were taking these ecosystems that were contained within themselves and we were freeing them. We were opening them up. And I worked with a lot of projects over the last number of years towards goals like this. And somewhat interesting, when about a month ago... Steam and uh, the company that operates Steam, Valve Games, which is one of the largest companies uh, doing you know, gaming, and I believe they're the most profitable, uh, released a card game called Artifact that in every way except for tokenization is exactly all the things that I've been thinking were going to happen with cryptocurrency and tokens and you know these sort of uh, free economy versions of collectible card games. And it's been a little bit uh, disconcerting to actually play that game and to watch not only as the number of players who are playing it drops dramatically because they don't actually like it. <laughs> and, and to feel myself that maybe a lot of the things that I had believed about how this would work in practice when you really do have hundreds of thousands of people using these ecosystems is fundamentally wrong. And that actually the things that we've been excited about because we've been thinking about it from a sort of speculative side actually have negative impacts on the games. And I've talked to people in the past who have told me this, and I've been like, no, you're wrong. But, you know, so it's, it's been interesting because an example that is not a cryptocurrency project, but which does a lot of things, except for the tokenization part, has sort of brought me around on an idea I've held for a very long time there, and perhaps I need to fundamentally re-examine where I think these things are useful within games. So that's a, that's a change I'm going through right now. So how do you think 2019 is going to be? <laughs> I love this right. your questions. You don't know. Let's go. <laughs> so another year of uh, of exciting development and boring price action, or you think we're you know this is the year we're going to you know achieve world domination? Anybody want to put any thoughts forward? I really like down markets because down markets weed out the bad stuff and consolidates it into good stuff. It's sort of a, a cycle, and the last really meaty down market we had was the birth of Ethereum came out of that. And I find that times that there aren't a lot of money to be had, people really look at what's the important things that they need to prioritize 
And rather than doing 10 things, they focus on their core product. And those are the periods where the most amount of structural, important innovation occur. So I'm, I'm really looking towards 2019 as being the time that really important things rather than distractions get built and get done. Right. I think it's been really tough, like we were just talking about, for companies to actually get a lot done because so much changes so quickly and you have to really be on your toes and reevaluating those beliefs that you may have held when you started the company. Things just change really fast. So I'm hoping that now things are stabilizing a little bit in the space and that there is going to be some stability for people to build companies and wallets based on. And also, I think it's going to be a year of growth, maybe not immediately in 2019, but sometime soon in the next few years, maybe two years or three years, we're going to see another big spike in growth, users, people knowing about cryptocurrencies. It's already really entering the the consciousness of everybody. It's like, you know, on TV and everything, everybody knows what cryptocurrency is and there's jokes about it in mainstream culture and things like that. But I think we're going to see another big spike coming up sometime soon and hopefully we'll be ready for it. Well, the uh, the other part to that is I, I think that they're going to be an insane number of projects that announce that they have no more funds. Mm, <laughs> yes, that we can count on that. <laughs> so Steam, speaking of Steam, Steam It was sort of the first announcement towards uh, not having funds, which could be a whole other topic in and of itself. But I, I think that there's going to be an inordinate number of projects that are 90% of the way to complete, but then run out of funding. And the difference between delivering on a product and not are going to have very serious legal consequences. So I really think that 2019 is going to be the year of phenomenal venture investments for projects that have substantive code that need that last million or two million to actually deploy their product and need to do that because the difference between delivering and not delivering have massive legal consequences. So I think from a, a, a venture capital standpoint, I think 2019 might be the best year ever in this industry for that weird sort of sort of a short squeeze moment. Yeah, we are moving towards the sort of uh, equilibrium in the ICO space. And, that, and so I, I'm thinking that at least the first half of 2019 is going to be sort of the hangover from that. But the nice part about it is that all the noise that sort of came at us because of the ICO opportunity that seemed apparent for all the projects out there is now pretty firmly gone. And you're going to have projects on the one side that know that they're doing something that's illegal in the U.S. And so we won't talk to them. And on the other side, you've got projects, um, you know, who are taking the uh, securitized token offering, uh, you know, legal view. But again, that means that we can't talk to them either. <laughs> so the distractions from uh, ICO projects or ICOing projects, um, you know, should go down dramatically. And, you know, as someone who spent the last year and a half operating in that space, attempting to raise funds, uh, I can tell you that it was a huge distraction for anybody who wasn't trying to do a sort of exploitative uh, ICO type of thing. And uh, I, I really think that that is only going to be good for the ecosystem so that we can start seeing, you know, deals happen around real value as opposed to the idea of speculative tokenized returns. I like to think that the real change for 2019 is not so much enforcement and bankruptcy of ICOs and enforcement by the SEC and, uh, uh, lawsuits and all of that. I think the real lesson already happened and it was throughout 2018. And it was several million investors getting their mm. first skeptical investment 101, a trial by fire, blood and tears. 
because those same investors are not going to dip their toes back into ridiculous projects once they've seen these cycle once. And that's good because then we can move on to a more mature environment where we have fewer pyramid schemes, fewer speculative investments, less bullshit, really. I still think we're going to see a lot of uh, business as usual wrapped up in blockchain still, but from more established players. So stable coins and commodity coins from big players who have massive reserves in precious metals, commodities, and currencies. We're going to start seeing, I think, possibly 2019 some of the big Western companies in the internet space, some maybe one of the fangs, doing some kind of payments network or digital currency that's some kind of stable coin, centralized thing. And I also believe that uh, we're going to see a deepening of the emerging market currency crisis that's going to strengthen even further the capital flight and currency control evasion uh, use case for money, for digital money, the pure use case for, for Bitcoin. And then on top of all that, something stunningly surprising and unexpected is going to happen in 2019. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know what it is yet, but I yeah, can't something. wait. But it's going to be stunningly <laughs> surprising and unexpected, right? And, and, and that's the beauty of being in this space. It could be a central bank digital currency. It could be a new protocol. It could be a, a new invention. It could be a better way of doing things. It could be a new application space or uh, suddenly viral popular use case for micropayments or games or something like that. But uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show was provided by Stephanie Murphy, Jonathan Mohan, Andreas M. Antonopoulos, and Adam B. Levine. Music for today's show was provided by Jared Rubens with editing by Dave and Adam B. Levine. To enter the Bitcoin Clock giveaway, send your questions to adam at letstalkbitcoin.com with the subject Bitcoin Clock. We'll see you next time.